<laughs> so, so we had uh, we go from a parable of talking about airplanes here to a parable that seems completely separate from airplanes. Thank you, uh, and uh, that is um, that is that of seeds that are planted into the ground or seeds that are sown. And so we look at Mark, the fourth chapter today. We're continuing this series uh, that is called Flight Plan. And we're looking at our strategic plan over the next three, three years here at East Point. And uh, last week we took a look at an overview, which I'd encourage you to go back. There's a lot of demographic information about our area that we talked about. Uh, and we talked about the parable of seed, how God grows us. But today we're going to take a look at evangelism. Evangelism is kind of that dirty word in the church. We all know that we should be doing it, but we also are scared to death to share our faith. That's a natural human reaction. We have to learn to overcome that fear. But today as we look at evangelism, I want to take a look at what's going on here in Mark the fourth chapter and what we know as the parable of the sower. So here's what's going on. Jesus is alongside the Sea of Galilee. There's a big crowd of people that are coming uh, towards him. And so he actually steps out into a boat and goes out a little bit further away from the shore. That was his pulpit, was the boat. And he steps, uh, I assume, into the stern of the boat or the back of the boat. And he starts teaching the crowds that are on the shore. And he taught them many parables. And here's what it says in verse 3. He says, listen, consider the sower, the planter, the farmer, if you will who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So here we have this farmer who's sowing some seed alongside of the road. And we see that this stands for the people, later later on Jesus says that immediately Satan comes and takes away the word from those who are sown in them. And I think we've experienced that as well, how we might have some spiritual growth or we might have someone who starts to have some faith in Christ, but then it seems like Satan comes and snags them away. Have you seen that happen before? Yeah. Jesus continues, he says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. I think we've seen this happen before. We just got some landscaping done at our house and had some rock put in. And when they planted the grass seed, well, some of the grass seed comes in the rock, but since it's got a barrier underneath of it, it doesn't last very long. I mean, you just pull it out and it's gone, or you just let it go, and it's not going to grow there in the rock for very long. And Jesus tells us that that's what's happening when people receive the word with joy, but then they don't have any roots behind it. And they are short-lived, and when persecution or distress comes, they end up falling away. In verse 7, Jesus says, Other seed fell among the thorns. We hate thorns, don't we? Nothing like going out hiking and stepping through some thorns and getting all torn up. It says, The thorns came and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. And so we see that Jesus describes that as those who the worries of the age or the deceitfulness of wealth or the desires for other things enter in and choke up the work of the Word of God and it becomes unfruitful in their lives. And so here we have the parable of the sower and we have three times that it seems like the sower has struck out. But since baseball hadn't been invited yet, invented yet, and they didn't know the three-strike rule, Jesus gives them a fourth chance here. 
And he says, others are like seed sown among the thorn. Oh, excuse me. In verse 8, still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. And so we see that an average crop would have been really like a 10 to 1 ratio. For every 10 seeds that you sow, you get one in return. Or excuse me, for every one seed you sow, you get 10 in return back in that day. That would have been a good crop. But finally, this farmer who seems to be failing all over finally gets a miraculous return. 30, 60, even a hundredfold return, which doesn't seem like much today. But in their day and age, it was a dramatic crop that Jesus was talking about, a dramatic harvest. Now, oftentimes, when we tell this story, we start talking about how, well, this means that we should find the good soil. We shouldn't waste our time on the bad soil. We should see that, well, that's rocky soil. Nothing's going to grow up there. So let's spend our resources instead on the good soil. The problem with that is, is that in this parable, we see that the sower is representing God. And what we see here is it seems that God is a very foolish farmer. You see what happens here if I were to tell this today, if Jesus were to tell this today, imagine if he'd say, a farmer was pulling his planter down a state highway. And as he was driving down the state highway, he decides to let his planter down and throw seed all over the highway. But none of it really came up much. If it did, it died quickly. Then as the farmer turned off of the state highway onto the gravel road where his field is located, he went ahead and threw out more seed along the road, the gravel road. And sure enough, some of it popped right up, but it was, it was short-lived because it didn't have the roots. And then before the farmer got to his field, he saw a ditch where there was a lot of thorns and thistle, but the planter, he just went ahead and eased it on over there and started throwing seed down in the ditch as well. And then finally he got to his field and he had a miraculous return in his field. You and I would hear that story and we'd say, this farmer's, this, this farmer's ridiculous. This farmer doesn't know what he's doing. But what Jesus is doing with this story is the same thing that he is doing with the parable of the prodigal son. He is showing us the audacious nature of God. Because in the parable of the prodigal son, of course, you have the prodigal son who runs away. But he is not the most audacious character in the story. The most audacious character is that when the son comes home, we see that the father comes running off the porch not to whoop up on the son, but to welcome the son home and to go and to kill the fattened calf and to celebrate because his son who was lost is now found. The people hearing that story would have thought, what? God is that kind of God? And Jesus would have said, yes, that's why I'm here. And so in the same way, when we hear this story of the parable of the sower, the message is not that we must find the best ground. Oh, we've got to look for the best ground before we ever share the gospel with anybody. The reality is, is you and I don't know what the best ground is. The reality is, is that God did not say, I'm going to the best ground. I'm going to the most fertile places. What God said is, I'm sowing my seed everywhere. 
Because I want my message of salvation to be heard not just here or not just there or not just among this people group or among this people group or this language or this skin color. But I want my message of salvation to be for everyone. And so, church, when we hear this message, we must also discover the truth that is for us. Because God has not entrusted the message of salvation to angels. He has entrusted it to us. And the message that we must hear and accept today is that we must be people who sow God's Word everywhere. We must be people who share God's message of hope with everyone. God has not called us to be soil judgers, but to be seed sowers. And that means that we must sow everywhere. And it means that we might make some choices when we share that seem foolish. Chris Villawak, one of our missionaries, He works in Muslim countries, and he says, sent this this week. He said, Asim is a Muslim man in a neighboring country, a middle child of five. He is in a part of the country that is extremely unreached. And then he describes it. Think rocky soil with a layer of concrete, another layer of titanium on top of that. In fact, we and others we know have been praying over and over about going into this region for decades, just trying to find one single believer in that whole region, but to no avail. This past April, Asim reached out to us after seeing one of our social media ads on Instagram and asked for a free Bible. He shared that two years earlier, he began having dreams of a glowing man who he later realized was Jesus. You know that Jesus goes ahead of you when you're sowing seeds? He knew through his dreams that he must step away from Allah and move towards Jesus. Asim was discipled for a month online, and then a team went to meet with him for the day, walking him through the scriptures from creation to Christ. And then this picture, on May 28, 2021, he professed Jesus Christ as Lord and was baptized. Now, I just want you to think about this, a place where they knew no Christians, zero Christians. Not that they didn't just know Christians, like there was like, well, we don't know any Christians there, but there are churches, like no churches, no nothing. Hard, rocky soil, and yet God brings a great harvest as a result and is doing a deeper work. Let me just ask you, who do you think is too far from Christ? Who do you think that it is in your life that, man, they're just too far gone? They're just too far away from being able to respond to the gospel of Jesus. Because people like Asim, what we see are never too far from God. Because God has come near to them. And God is working ahead of us. He's working behind us. And yes, He's working through us for the sake of the gospel. Here's how Mark 4 concludes, or at least this passage concludes. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. 
And he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. It's an odd thing for Jesus to say after what he just says, unless we understand that he's quoting from Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6, after Isaiah sees the Lord and this holy, holy, holy passage, and Isaiah's, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips, and God takes a rock from the fire, an angel takes this, this burning coal from the fire and places it against his lips to purify him. Then, then Isaiah says, what should I do? And you know, basically he's like, here am I, send me, I'll go. And then God says to him, hey, go, but the people aren't going to respond. It seems like an odd passage of Scripture, but do you know that that is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in all of the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels it's quoted. In the book of Acts it's quoted. In Romans, and I believe 1 Corinthians as well, it's alluded to. The message of the early church that they held on to is that they were to sow everywhere, but with an understanding that they would be rejected. But what I want to tell you, church, is that rejection doesn't mean failure. Because, and when someone says no to Christ, we haven't necessarily failed. We've been faithful to share. You know, God doesn't call you to be 100% successful or even 10% successful in evangelism. He calls you to be faithful to share. And you know, it's a lot like those airplanes. I don't think many of you, did any of you get it to the stage on your first throw? Did anybody get it up on the first throw? Okay, you got it? Awesome, look at you. Yeah, all right. So we had one person get all the way up there out of this whole room. Maybe a couple. That's it. But everybody else required two or three or four or five throws, right? Some we just had to scoop up at the end and dump them up here, right? And the same thing is true with evangelism. Your goal in evangelism is not necessarily to get someone, if zero is them coming to faith, if they're at negative 10 right now, it's, that's a long way from negative 10 all the way to zero, isn't it? Maybe your role is simply to get them from a negative 10 to a negative 6. And that's your role in their life, and maybe they move. Maybe you, know, you end up running in different circles at that point in time. Maybe God will bring them back into your life later on. Maybe not. Who knows? But at the same time, the reality is, is that maybe you're the person who can get them from a negative two to zero. Maybe you're the person who can help them cross that line of faith and to find Christ. That's a great thing, isn't it? We all like to be in those roles. But again, evangelism isn't primarily about helping someone come to Christ. Evangelism is about proclaiming the goodness of God to everyone, everywhere. And so if you can get them a little closer to Christ, you have been faithful. You have won. And so as we continue on here, let me just look at a few things for our East Point strategic plan. First, our metric or our goal here, our measuring point that, it's, that, that we have, is that every East Point believer can identify the person they are investing in relationally with the hope of leading this person to Christ. We want everyone to have at least one. We want everyone to be fully devoted to helping reach out to people. We want everyone to say, this is the person I'm praying for. This is the person that I want to see come through the waters of baptism. This is the person that I want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. If everyone has one, then we can see God do an amazing work. It all starts with one. 
Would it be great for you to have more than one eventually? Of course it would. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is that starting with one is the place to start. So what are some of our key objectives here? First, we want to identify and build key partnerships in our community. Last week, we talked about how our community is under-resourced and underserved. Blacklick has trouble finding an identity of its own because of the structure of the community, how it's kind of a part of Columbus, but it's kind of not, doesn't really have its own mayor, doesn't have its own representatives that are really looking out for it. And we shared so many of those stats about people who are in need in our community and what that looks like. But secondly, what we want to do is we want to train our church to evangelize using simple methods. We want everybody in this church to be trained in evangelism, to know what it's like to share your faith. That's part of the whole reason behind Only God Can, being able to share your story in a hundred words or less, being able to enter into every conversation to say, hey, that sounds like an Only God Can kind of moment. And people say, what? What do you mean by Only God? Well, let me tell you my Only God Can story. And there, in like 30 to 60 seconds, you can share very briefly your story, and you can be a witness in a very simple way. Third, we want to pray corporately for hurting individuals around us who need Jesus. And we don't just want to say, we want you to pray, but we want to start a prayer movement here. We want to recognize that this is an only God can moment in the life of our church, and we don't want to look back and say, man, man, when Dustin came into that church, things really turned around, didn't they? No, we don't want to say that. First, that ain't going to happen. But second, like what we want is that we want people to look and to say, man, God did an amazing work. We want something to happen that's so big and that's so great here that when people look back, they say, man, that was an only God can kind of moment. That's the only thing that could have happened there. And that starts with prayer. That starts with a devotion to prayer. And fourth and finally, we want to establish a compassion arm of East Point. One of the things we talked about last week is how many people in our immediate area are, are under heavy financial constraints, how marriages are more at risk in this area than they are in the areas uh, further around us, how in this area, how children are more at risk. How is it that we can come alongside of parents? How is it we can come alongside of single moms, help them sort out their finances, help them figure things out so that they can move forward? Because, man, the message of Christ really soars when compassion is attached to it because compassion is an essential element to the message of Jesus Christ. If we have no compassion, then we have no message. So those are our keys. What does that look like in a post-Christian culture? What does that look like in a culture that is more and more becoming uh, further away from Christ, more and more rejecting Christ in the public square, where rejecting Christ has become not only commonplace, but the popular thing to do? Let me give you an illustration from the 1940s, from the Tuskegee Airmen. Many of you have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen, and some of you have even known uh, that uh, this unit, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, was actually moved after World War II uh, to, to Lockbourne Air Force Base, which of course eventually became Rickenbacker. One of our elders, Ed Robinson, who was playing bass up here today, even traveled around with some of the airmen in the late 90s, uh, helping portray them at school assemblies and helping them to tell their story. Well, back in World War II, the military was still very segregated. And when the, the war began, there were no black pilots in the Army Air Corps, uh, the predecessor to the Air Force. And while there had been pressure to expand, 
The thoughts expressed from the government documents in that time is that people in high powers did not believe that black people were capable uh, of the physical and mental capacity necessary to be fighter pilots. But eventually in the middle of the war, a group of black pilots from all over the country gathered in Tuskegee, Alabama to be trained to become fighter pilots. And all throughout the program, the heavy scrutiny of the government continued to be felt. On multiple occasions, the program was threatened to be cut and on the verge of being cut. But at one point, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, visited and took a whim-of-the-moment flight with one of the airmen and declared him to be as competent as any white pilot she had ever flown with. Eventually, the Tuskegee airmen were allowed to fight in the war, first being located in North Africa and not seeing a great deal of opposition on runs on Italy. But then they were relocated to mainland Europe, where they continued to face segregation from their white counterparts in the military, not being allowed to do things like go into the officers' clubs, even though they had every right to be there. As frustrating as it was for them, their leader, Colonel Benjamin Davis, continued to stress to them to let their flying do the talking and to fight with great excellence. And that's exactly what they did. The Red Tails, as they became known, established one of the best records against enemy fighters as they escorted their bombers to the bomb sites. Often when there would be a crippled American bomber that couldn't keep up with the rest of the squadron, it was acceptable for that, in that day for the fighter squadrons to leave them behind. However, the Tuskegee Airmen became known for their loyalty, staying beside the white pilots and their crippled bombers and seeing them out of enemy territory. Towards the end of the war, even though the Red Tails weren't allowed to integrate on the ground, the white bomber squadrons would often request that the airmen, the Red Tails, fly alongside of them because they were known for their great loyalty and skill. I want to say what I think would be a great Tuskegee principle for Christians in today's age. Something that we can learn from the Red Tails is this is that in our increasingly hostile post-Christian culture, is that we must demonstrate loyalty to the very people who are disloyal to you. We must stand by the side of those who reject us and walk alongside of them and continue to show them the love of Christ even when they reject us, even when they see us as lower than equals because of our religious beliefs. And I believe that when we do this, eventually, eventually and hopefully, people will understand. People will understand that there's something different about us. And what is different about us is that we have Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has transformed us and has given us this perseverance that is so badly needed in today's culture to walk with people and to help them see Christ. Will you show the Tuskegee principle to others? Will you show others the goodness of God in the midst of it all? In the midst of even their disloyalty to you, will you continue to show Christ right at their side? At the risk of her sharing many embarrassing stories of my upbringing, I have asked my mom, Jeannie Fulton, to come and to share her Only God Can story with you today to close out this message on evangelism. And so all the way from the land of Lincoln, would you please welcome my mother, Jeannie Fulton. Good morning. On Friday mornings, 
My sister and I go to the Goodwill warehouse and shop for bargains. But a few months ago, God sent me there not to find a good deal, but to share his good news. On that day at Goodwill, there was a middle-aged man we had seen many times before. He was always nice and cheerful and a little loud. He happened to be standing by me looking at clothes and started talking to me about his wife, his mother, and his best friend, all three of which had passed away in the last year. Then he said that his priest told him he would see them again because he was a good person. I was surprised by this, so I asked if the priest told him he needed to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior first. All I could think of was I couldn't leave this man thinking he was going to heaven because of his good deeds instead of trusting in Jesus. He said no, he had not made that decision yet, so I explained what it meant to do so and asked if he would like to do it right here and right now in the middle of the Goodwill warehouse. He said yes. He repeated after me, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, my Lord and Savior. I then asked if I could pray for him, and I took his hands, and we prayed. He cried, and we hugged. My name is Jeannie Fulton, and I believe only God can take a shopping trip to goodwill and turn it into a man finding salvation in Christ. Thank you. We're sending her to the Dollar General next. <laughs> or better yet, the Salvation Army maybe. I don't know. Guys, we have a message that is worth sowing everywhere. This message of hope is one that is needed all across the world. This message of hope is one that is needed by every single believer to walk the face of the earth. And so whether you're trying to reach Julia or whether you're trying to reach Aaron, or whether you're trying to reach John, I can tell you that God will be faithful to take your efforts and to bring something great out of them. You will be afraid to share. That's a part of being human. But when you overcome that fear, I'm telling you, God can do something great through the seed that you sow. So church, Let's go and sow everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we just declare your goodness that this message of yours that started in a, humble, in a humble carpenter from Galilee has truly gone all over the world. And God, we want it to go to every single person, whether it's to Asim's brothers and sisters all the way around the world or whether it's to our neighbors. We want to be faithful to be a part of your plan to share your message everywhere. And so, Jesus, we trust in you now, and we pray with commitment. We pray with that desire to go and to share your message with those who we have written on these planes and with those who you have written on our hearts, the names of people who need your word. We love you and we thank you and we praise you, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.